evidence and answers. Playing in the theaters today are a lot of great movies. Drama, comedy, some based on actual events, others strictly fiction. Whatever genre you enjoy, the movies can be a great door opener to engage your friends and neighbors in discussion. Asking the right questions, you can share your thoughts and feelings about real topics that affect those around you from a Christian perspective, thus planting the seeds of faith. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat will be continuing on with an interview he started the last time we were together with author Doug Guyvet, and we'll discuss the very topic of cinema. Stay tuned. This will be a great discussion, and it will open doors for you to share your faith with others. Here's Pat now with part two. But he's so bound and determined to do it, and there's something luring him to the trail, and he can't put it into words. He doesn't even know himself. Then as they're marching along this trail, they observe all the beauty of the natural world. But the Redford character, right, cannot see past the surface beauty of the world to anything larger than life, anything that is transcendent. And, in fact, all it does is humble him and make him think about how insignificant human persons and human life really is. So I think that's, a, that's an example of how a worldview is sort of subtly introduced because God is not part of the story. Well, that's a great example. You know, I also think of the movie Avatar, and it seemed to have a strong environmentalist message there. And the reason why the Navi live on this planet in such a pristine shape is because they seem to have a pantheistic worldview, and they worship, and they're one with Awa. And because of that, they yeah. they have this pristine paradise there. And it seemed like the message was saying, you know, if we want that pristine paradise, we need to adopt the worldview of pantheism. Is that the theology you saw in that movie? Yeah, I do. I think that is there. And there's more to it than that, too. There's social commentary in that film. That's something we haven't touched on yet. The way that films are used as tools for commenting on culture and advancing a certain agenda. And I think in that movie, that's one thing you see. Not only do you see the cause of environmentalism being promoted, you also see a critique of capitalism and what it can lead to. And it portrays those who believe in a capital system, a free market, as people with no conscience, people who just exploit others, to their own advantage. And of course, there are people like that. But this movie is making a sweeping claim about a particular view of what is good for humanity when it comes to wealth. Generally speaking, and you speak about this in your book as well, what do the movies today teach us about morality? Yeah, about morality. Well, sometimes the question, questions of morality are only you know, subtle and non-central. They're not central to the story of the film. And then other times, they, they really are. Let's talk about the movie Bruce Almighty to connect it up with some of the things we've been discussing here. Have you seen the film Bruce Almighty? Yes, I have. That's another great movie, to great discussion starter kind of movie. It's a great discussion movie, and you can get a lot of disagreement among Christians about what's going on in that movie. I had conversations like that myself. But here's a guy who's in a dead-end job, 
who is being bypassed for promotion as he watches shallow people get better jobs in his company. And he finally gets fed up with it, and he starts to blame God for the problems that he is faced with. You know, he doesn't enjoy the life he wants, and he blames God for it. And so God decides that he's going to give him the opportunity to make his life the way he would make it if he was God, if he had God's power. (laughs) And what does he do? He ends up making his life even worse. One thing that strikes me about that particular film is that he has some of God's powers or properties, but he doesn't have all of God's properties. And so he has God's power, but he isn't morally perfect the way God is, and he isn't omniscient the way God is. So now what he has are his limited powers of knowing the, his limited powers of knowledge and of goodness, and that's united by unlimited powers of power and influence over the world, and he ends up making things worse than better. And so his deep character as a person doesn't change. He's not a better person morally. He begins to be vindictive towards those he doesn't like, and he's very ungodlike. His character is not like God's character, but his power is. That's the only thing that he's got, that God has, is his divine power. But ultimately, he's humbled by this because he realizes that he can't control the world out of the lust of his heart and get the world uh, and get a better world as a result. Yeah, you know that's a great critique of that movie. You know, Doug, you also talk about human nature in your book. What, what do movies today generally teach us about human nature? It's so hard to say what movies say generally about any topic because there are so many differences, but a powerful or prominent theme about human nature is that we have desires that go deep, but not the wherewithal to fulfill these desires, or that we seek to satisfy our needs and our desires in ways that don't really meet those needs. I think films are grappling with that reality that most of what we try to fill the vacuum in our lives, the hollowness of our lives, doesn't ultimately really have that effect. It doesn't work. And that would be true with the Bruce Almighty movie. We see him discover that about himself. He comes to trust God in ways that he didn't before. We see that with Truman uh, Burbank in Sea Haven, where even though he lives in a perfect world and you could hardly complain about anything, everything goes right in that world. But somehow, deep down, it's not satisfying to him, and he wants out. We think about that with this movie I mentioned last night, A Walk in the Woods. Here's a character who is lured to go into the woods, the mountains, and do this big hike, and he can't explain why. There's something deep inside his soul that is yearning for more, and he can't say why that is or what it is, and somehow he thinks that this hike, this 2,000-mile hike, will meet that need. In the end, he gives up. He realizes that he can't finish this walk, and he goes home. What's interesting is that film does not resolve his problem. At the end of the film, it's not as if he's figured out what his life is supposed to be about. He just knows that that goal didn't achieve his deep feeling of need for something more significant. 
Well, that's a great critique. You know, I also see Doug in many movies, I guess, portraying perhaps the goodness of man or the goodness of humanity. I'm thinking of a movie like The Day the Earth Stood Still with Keanu Reeves. Mm. And here you have an mm -hmm. alien race that brings in these globe ships and they're collecting all these animals. And I, that's supposed to be like Noah's Ark where they save all the animals. Yeah. But then the, they're going to unleash this uh, microbe and they are going to go and destroy human civilization and all of mankind and the debate. And Keanu Reeves is the alien representing this alien race that's began life on Earth and I guess going to bring it to an end. And the whole debate is, is humankind good? Are they worth redeeming or saving? And there's a debate, I believe, between a professor and Keanu Reeves They're having a great discussion. And, and the professor is building the case that humankind is good and can be redeemed. Is that one mm -hmm. of those themes you're seeing in, in the goodness of humanity and, and mankind? Yes, because that's all the hope that you have without God in the world. So we have this deep need for confidence that things will turn out all right. But if there is no God, then your confidence has to be in human solutions to human problems. And so movies will, will depict that way of seeing the world and seeing your way through the world to a satisfying verdict about human existence. So you deal with all these vicissitudes, all these ups and downs, but the hope is that at the end of the process, things have turned out all right, and it's happened because of, as you say, the deep, abiding goodness of humanity, or at least of enough human beings who are able to make a difference in the world. I think that's right. Throughout the years, we can see the ideas that dominate the culture at that particular time. I mean, we've come a long way from It's a Wonderful Life to movies today like The Matrix. <laughs> Just briefly, I know this is a loaded question, but can you tell us what I, you know, show us how the ideas that dominated during the periods of the 70s, 80s, 90s to where we are now, what kind of ideas were reflected in the movies at that time? Again, it's varied. And I, in some ways, I don't think things have changed all that much. In oh, other really? ways, it seems oh. like the changes are pretty dramatic. Yeah, there are times when I'll see a film that's that's an older film, and I think, you know, that story is not much different than the stories that are being told today. And if you just take the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, you know, you've got this character who's given up hope. He's being given a vision of what his life might have been like if he had given up sooner. He realizes that he made the right choice. It's still a world without God in it, if you think about it. You've got this kind of angelic creature who, as it were, sits on his shoulder and talks him through his pain and his depression. But that's a very weak symbol of God's influence in his life. It is still a kind of humanistic approach to uh, human problems. So do you see the point I'm making about that film? and how it does kind of dovetail with what we're saying generally about movies today. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you've ruined one of my favorite No, just kidding. No, but that, <laughs> that is a great point that you're making. I, I did not notice that about that. And so you're saying some of the themes really carry, have just carried on through throughout the decades. 
Well, yeah, you know, human beings haven't changed. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote that, he said, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most likely explanation is that I was made for another world. And a lot of storytellers today are trying to avoid that conclusion. And they do find in themselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, but they keep trying to find the solution, the satisfaction in this world. And I think if you go back and you look at movies, even, you know, the great movies that have won the Academy Awards going all the way back to the beginning, you'll be able to see a trend there that hasn't changed even up to the present time. I think that would be an interesting study would be to see how, let's just use that as a lens, what C.S. Lewis says, I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy. And then ask yourself, does that indicate the likelihood that you were made for another world? Just use that as a, a lens for making sense of the different movies that have been made over the decades. And I think you'd see a trend that's following a pretty similar line. Wow, that's some fantastic insight there. Well, Doug, you gave us some great principles and some great ideas and the ideologies behind many of these movies. Let me ask you about uh, some of the movies here so we can see how you critique and think through some of these movies. But first of all, you talked about directors. Let's talk about some of the popular directors out there and their worldview and ideologies. What about a guy like Steven Spielberg? How do you critique uh, him yeah. and his ideas? Well, Spielberg is nothing if not a great entertainer, right? He directs really, truly gripping stories, and they're all over the map. I mean, he's made movies about all sorts of different things. Adventure is a big feature in his film. I just think it's very hard to say about Steven Spielberg that his films carry the same message all the way through. I really think that a big draw for him is that his films are very exciting and very engaging and very enjoyable to watch. But so what you have to do with him is you have to look at particular films. So name a film, for example, and let's see if we can take a look at that. Just analyze it for a moment. Which film would you want to consider? All right, Doug. Well, how about Saving Private Ryan? Let's, let's hear your analysis of Spielberg and his directing of that movie. Well, this, of course, is a fantastic movie. It's a fantastic story. And one reason for that is that it's so true to life. And what we, this story follows the life of a man from a simple background. I think he was a school teacher. And he ends up in World War II leading a platoon of guys tasked with going and finding Private Ryan. And the reason for this is that I think he had two other brothers who were serving in the war, and they'd both been killed. And American policy at the time was when something like that happened, you had to pull the, the surviving brother off out of the theater and send him back home. Isn't that kind of how the story goes? Right. Uh-huh. So, and so he's got to work with this ragtag team of American soldiers and keep them pursuing this objective. And part of the problem for them is reckoning with the fact of their own mortality as they put them their own lives on the line just in order to save this guy they've never met. And maybe they don't even think it's all that just that he should be somehow special in comparison with themselves. But this platoon leader 
keeps them going. He keeps them moving, and he inspires them. And his example is inspirational. Now, of course, at the end of the movie, everybody's killed except Private Ryan. Private Ryan is spared. You know, they get to where he is. They've got him with them. They engage the enemy. Their, you know, support team is just behind him, doesn't get there in time for all of them to survive. But Private Ryan does survive. And then we find out that this story is being told by Private Ryan himself, who's standing in the National Cemetery looking at the tombstone for one of these men and contemplating the burden that he now feels for living a meaningful life because of what they did in sacrificing their lives for him. I think that kind of encapsulates what's going on in that film. Yes. And uh, so you have you have all these different layers of significance. What is the point of human life? And is it does it make sense for a group of men to risk their own lives to go save the life of an unknown person? And then what do we make of the value of a life that's been spared? You know, after Private Ryan, after the war is over and he goes on and he starts his family and he raises his kids, and he's an, he's an older man now. He's a grandfather. And he is carrying with him the burden of the sacrifice that these men made. And he's asking himself the question, did my life count? And was is the life that I now live good enough to justify the sacrifice those people made? And I think the movie ends without a clear answer to that question. If I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. These men on the battlefield had a driving desire to live meaningful lives, and that meant laying down their lives for another person. I've often thought that one reason why it can make sense to go to war is because there is hope of an afterlife. And so it makes sense to fight to the death for a good cause, even if it is for the benefit of somebody you don't know, because you have hope in eternal life. But if you don't have that, it's more difficult to account for the value of sacrifice for another person. In that movie, the only thing that vindicates, sorry, the only thing presented in the movie as the thing that made their death worthwhile, their sacrifice worthwhile, is that this man was able to live a life, a fairly ordinary life, but he was a good man. He lived a good life, and he raised a family, and he did the best he could. And that's supposed to be good enough to justify the sacrifice those people made. Do we believe that? Is that really, deep down, something we're prepared to believe? Can we think of our lives in those terms and be satisfied? I think that would be a good question to ask. Wow, you know, that's a great analysis, and what a great discussion or sermon illustration that would make. And you can see, when you know how to critique and analyze movies like you do, they can lead to some very profound discussions with Christians and non-Christians. You know, I mean, non-Christians may not want to talk about the gospel, but boy, they want to talk about movies. And if you can present questions like that as you analyze these movies. It's great avenues. You're you're showing, you know, to 
a great avenue, a great door to, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, oh, that's that's absolutely right. You know, how might a, how could a conversation like that go? Well, you could say, well, we just watched the movie Saving Private Ryan. What do you think? Do you think their sacrifice was worth it? And why? Why would that be worthwhile? How does this man feel late in his life about the sacrifice that they made? Does he feel good about his life? Does he think that he lived up to their expectations? Or does he carry a weight of guilt? Has he lived the good life? Did the man who died for him, them live a good life up until the point of their sacrifice? What is the good life? Yeah, great, great avenues to share the profound truths that the gospel presents. Well, how about another director we hear a lot about, Ron Howard? We all know him as Richie Cunningham. <laughs> how about Ron Howard? <laughs> yeah. yeah, Richie Cunningham. And even before that with, you know, Mayberry, the days of Mayberry when he was a even oh, yeah. younger boy. That's right. So let's think about a couple of films that he has directed. Yeah, uh, Apollo 13, how's that? Okay, Apollo 13, that's a good one, because we're talking now about another film with same leading character. Yeah, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Yeah, we got a theme here, Jim Carrey and, and Tom Hanks. Huh? <laughs> Jim Carrey and Tom Hanks, that's yeah. right. So in this case, we have another story that depicts actual events, right? Apollo 13 is a true story. That movie is a true story. These astronauts went up, and they did a bold and heroic thing, and then they got themselves into trouble, and they almost didn't make it back to Earth. And it's really remarkable that they were able to make it back at all. So we might ask a question like this. We might say, well, then, then how did they make it back? Was it pure human ingenuity and technology that got them back? And if so, does that reinforce a message that human beings can sort of pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and solve their most difficult problems? So that would be one kind of question you could ask. And it's a question you can ask about the film more effectively than you can ask about the real-life situation. Because we don't really know the details of the real-life situation. We don't really know what the men on that ship were thinking, whether they were praying men. We don't know exactly what they said to each other. But we have a recreation of that in the film. So if all we have to go on is what the film depicts, we might ask that question. How do you explain their survival? And can that explanation be given strictly in terms of human ingenuity and human technology? Or were these people just lucky to be alive despite... Or maybe, maybe you, you could say that the film is showing the limitations of human ingenuity and human technology. And look how close we came to losing these guys and how lucky, pure, you know, strictly lucky they were to survive. Those are two different takes on what's going on there. But notice, again, there is no real reference to any kind of transcendent source of hope in this film. Let's talk about some movies here, and I think there's one that's quite significant here because it's asking the question, what is reality? And, and, and that's the series The Matrix. We have a group led by Neo, I believe he's the hero here, Keanu Reeves, and it's kind of like a, a Gnostic kind of movie. They understand true reality, that the world we see today is really The Matrix. It, it's really not real. 
the real world behind mm -hmm. it is, you know, the world has been destroyed and there's a group here that knows true reality that they are battling, I, I think, the robots and, and these uh, people here with the special knowledge and skill and, and the real wars between humans and the robots here that's going on and all these programs and things. One of the questions out there is, is what is reality? And they're going back between the two worlds, the worlds we see now, you know, and the Matrix, and they keep going back and forth. Give us your analysis of that movie, the mate, that series, The Matrix. I think that's a very significant series there. Yeah, I think so too. And uh, David Hunt wrote the chapter for our book on that film series. Uh, I think there were three Matrix films. You've put your finger on a major philosophical question that's raised by those films, and that is the question of appearance and reality. How do we know that the world as we perceive it is the way the world really is? Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. Be sure to join us next time for the continuation of this exciting show. If you found this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on the Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. That's evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available to you. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, visit their website at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. <laughs>